Chapter Seventeen, Part Three of Democracy in America, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. Democracy in America, Volume One, by Alexis de Tocqueville, translated by Henry Reeve. Chapter Seventeen. Principal Causes Maintaining the Democratic Republic Part 3 Principal Causes Which Render Religion Powerful in America Care Taken by the Americans to Separate the Church from the State The Laws, Public Opinion, and Even the Exertions of the Clergy Concurred to Promote this End Influence of Religion upon the Mind in the United States Attributable to this Cause Reason of this what is the natural state of men with regard to religion at the present time? What are the peculiar and incidental causes which prevent men in certain countries from arriving at this state? The philosophers of the eighteenth century explained the gradual decay of religious faith in a very simple manner. Religious zeal, said they, must necessarily fail the more generally liberty is established and knowledge diffused. Unfortunately, facts are by no means in accordance with their theory. There are certain populations in Europe whose unbelief is only equalled by their ignorance and their debasement, whilst in America one of the freest and most enlightened nations in the world fulfills all the outward duties of religious fervor. Upon my arrival in the United States, the religious aspect of the country was the first thing that struck my attention, and the longer I stayed there, the more did I perceive the great political consequences resulting from this state of things, to which I was unaccustomed. In France I had almost always seen the spirit of religion and the spirit of freedom pursuing courses diametrically opposed to each other, but in America I found that they were intimately united, and that they reigned in common over the same country. My desire to discover the causes of this phenomenon increased from day to day. In order to satisfy it, I questioned the members of all the different sects, and I more especially sought the society of the clergy, who are the depositaries of the different persuasions, and who are more especially interested in their duration. As a member of the Roman Catholic Church, I was more particularly brought into contact with several of its priests, with whom I became intimately acquainted. To each of these men I expressed my astonishment, and I explained my doubts. I found that they differed upon matters of detail alone, and that they mainly attributed the peaceful dominion of religion in their country to the separation of church and state. I do not hesitate to affirm that during my stay in America I did not meet with a single individual, of the clergy or of the laity, who was not of the same opinion upon this point. This led me to examine more attentively than I had hitherto done the station which the American clergy occupy in political society. I learned with surprise that they filled no public appointments. Not one of them is to be met with in the administration, and they are not even represented in the legislative assemblies. In several states the law excludes them from political life, public opinion in all. And when I came to inquire into the prevailing spirit of the clergy, I found that most of its members seemed to retire of their own accord from the exercise of power and that they made it the pride of their profession to abstain from politics. I heard them inveigh against ambition and deceit, and the whatever political opinions these vices might chance to lurk, 
but I learn from their discourses that men are not guilty in the eye of God for any opinions concerning political government which they may profess with sincerity, any more than they are for their mistakes in building a house or in driving a furrow. I perceived that these ministers of the gospel eschewed all parties with the anxiety attendant upon personal interest. These facts convinced me that what I had been told was true, and it then became my object to investigate their causes, and to inquire how it happened that the real authority of religion was increased by a state of things which diminished its apparent force. These causes did not long escape my researches. The short space of threescore years can never content the imagination of man, nor can the imperfect joys of this world satisfy his heart. Man alone, of all created beings, displays a natural contempt of existence, and yet a boundless desire to exist. He scorns life, but he dreads annihilation. These different feelings incessantly urge his soul to the contemplation of a future state, and religion directs his musings thither. Religion, then, is simply another form of hope, and it is no less natural to the human heart than hope itself. Men cannot abandon their religious faith without a kind of aberration of intellect and a sort of violent distortion of their true natures, but they are invincibly brought back to more pious sentiments, for unbelief is an accident, and faith is the only permanent state of mankind. If we only consider religious institutions in a purely human point of view, they may be said to derive an inexhaustible element of strength from man himself, since they belong to one of the constituent principles of human nature. I am aware that at certain times religion may strengthen this influence, which originates in itself by the artificial power of the laws, and by the support of those temporal institutions which direct society. Religions, intimately united to the governments of the earth, have been known to exercise a sovereign authority derived from the twofold source of terror and of faith. But when a religion contracts an alliance of this nature, I do not hesitate to affirm that it commits the same error as a man who should sacrifice his future to his present welfare, and in obtaining a power to which it has no claim, it risks that authority which is rightfully its own. When a religion founds its empire upon the desire of immortality which lives in every human heart, it may aspire to universal dominion. But when it connects itself with a government, it must necessarily adopt maxims which are only applicable to certain nations. Thus, in forming an alliance with a political power, religion augments its authority over a few, and forfeits the hope of reigning over all. As long as a religion rests upon those sentiments which are the consolation of all affliction, it may attract the affections of mankind. But if it be mixed up with the bitter passions of the world, it may be constrained to defend allies whom its interests, and not the principle of love, have given to it, or to repel as antagonists men who are still attached to its own spirit, however opposed they may be to the powers to which it is allied. The Church cannot share the temporal power of the State without being the object of a portion of that animosity which the latter excites. The political powers which seem to be most firmly established have frequently no better guarantee for their duration than the opinions of a generation, the interests of the time, or the life of an individual. 
a law may modify that social condition which seems to be most fixed and determinate, and with the social condition everything else must change. The powers of society are more or less fugitive. Like the years which we spend upon the earth, they succeed each other with rapidity, like the fleeting cares of life, and no government has ever yet been founded upon an invariable disposition of the human heart, or upon an imperishable interest. As long as a religion is sustained by those feelings, propensities, and passions which are found to occur under the same forms at all the different periods of history, it may defy the efforts of time, or at least it can only be destroyed by another religion. But when religion clings to the interests of the world, it becomes almost as fragile a thing as the powers of earth. It is the only one of them all which can hope for immortality, but if it be connected with their ephemeral authority, it shares their fortunes, and may fall with those transient passions which supported them for a day. The alliance which religion contracts with political powers must needs be onerous to itself, since it does not require their assistance to live, and by giving them its assistance it may be exposed to decay. The danger which I have just pointed out always exists, but it is not always equally visible. In some ages governments seem to be imperishable, in others the existence of society appears to be more precarious than the life of man. Some constitutions plunge the citizens into a lethargic somnolence, and others rouse them to feverish excitement. When governments appear to be so strong and laws so stable, men do not perceive the dangers which may accrue from a union of church and state. When governments display so much weakness and laws so much inconstancy, the danger is self-evident, but it is no longer possible to avoid it. To be effectual, measures must be taken to discover its approach. In proportion, as a nation assumes a democratic condition of society, and as communities display democratic propensities, it becomes more and more dangerous to connect religion with political institutions. For the time is coming when authority will be bandied from hand to hand, when political theories will succeed each other, and when men, laws, and constitutions will disappear or be modified from day to day, and this not for a season only, but unceasingly. Agitation and mutability are inherent in the nature of democratic republics, just as stagnation and inertness are the law of absolute monarchies. If the Americans, who change the head of the government once in four years, who elect new legislators every two years, and renew the provincial officers every twelve months, if the Americans, who have abandoned the political world to the attempts of innovators, had not placed religion beyond their reach, where it could abide in the ebb and flow of human opinions, where would that respect which belongs to it be paid amidst the struggles of faction? and what would become of its immortality in the midst of perpetual decay. The American clergy were the first to perceive this truth, and to act in conformity with it. They saw that they must renounce their religious influence if they were to strive for political power, and they chose to give up the support of the state rather than to share its vicissitudes. In America, religion is perhaps less powerful than it has been at certain periods in the history of certain peoples, but its influence is more lasting. It restricts itself to its own resources, but of those none can deprive it. Its circle is limited to certain principles, but those principles are entirely its own, 
and under its undisputed control. On every side in Europe we hear voices complaining of the absence of religious faith, and inquiring the means of restoring to religion some remnant of its pristine authority. It seems to me that we must first attentively consider what ought to be the natural state of men with regard to religion at the present time, and when we know what we have to hope and to fear, we may discern the end to which our efforts ought to be directed. The two great dangers which threaten the existence of religions are schism and indifference. In ages of fervent devotion, men sometimes abandon their religion, but they only shake it off in order to adopt another. Their faith changes the objects to which it is directed, but it suffers no decline. The old religion, then, excites enthusiastic attachment or bitter enmity in either party. Some leave it with anger, others cling to it with increased devotedness, and although persuasions differ, irreligion is unknown. Such, however, is not the case when a religious belief is secretly undermined by doctrines which may be termed negative, since they deny the truth of one religion without affirming that of any other. Prodigious revolutions then take place in the human mind without the apparent cooperation of the passions of man, and almost without his knowledge. Men lose the objects of their fondest hopes, as if through forgetfulness. They are carried away by an imperceptible current which they have not the courage to stem, but which they follow with regret, since it bears them from a fate they love, and to a scepticism that plunges them into despair. In ages which answer to this description, men desert their religious opinions from lukewarmness rather than from dislike. They do not reject them, but the sentiments by which they were once fostered disappear. But if the unbeliever does not admit religion to be true, he still considers it useful. Regarding religious institutions in a human point of view, he acknowledges their influence upon manners and legislation. He admits that they may serve to make men live in peace with one another, and to prepare them gently for the hour of death. He regrets the faith which he has lost, and as he is deprived of a treasure which he has learned to estimate at its full value, he scruples to take it from those who still possess it. On the other hand, those who continue to believe are not afraid openly to avow their faith. They look upon those who do not share their persuasion as more worthy of pity than of opposition, and they are aware that to acquire the esteem of the unbelieving they are not obliged to follow their example. They are hostile to no one in the world, and as they do not consider the society in which they live as an arena in which religion is bound to face its thousand deadly foes, they love their contemporaries, whilst they condemn their weaknesses and lament their errors. As those who do not believe conceal their incredulity, and as those who believe display their faith, public opinion pronounces itself in favour of religion. Love, support, and honour are bestowed upon it, and it is only by searching the human soul that we can detect the wounds which it has received. The mass of mankind, who are never without the feeling of religion, do not perceive anything at variance with the established faith. The instinctive desire of a future life brings the crowd before the altar, and opens the hearts of men to the precepts and consolations of religion. But this picture is not applicable to us, for there are men amongst us who have ceased to believe in Christianity without adopting any other religion, others who are in the perplexities of doubt, and who already affect not to believe, 
and others again who are afraid to avow that Christian faith which they still cherish in secret. Amidst these lukewarm partisans and ardent antagonists, a small number of believers exist who are ready to brave all obstacles and to scorn all dangers in defense of their faith. They have done violence to human weakness in order to rise superior to public opinion. Excited by the effort they have made, they scarcely knew where to stop, and as they know that the first use which the French made of independence was to attack religion, they look upon their contemporaries with dread, and they recoil in alarm from the liberty which their fellow-citizens are seeking to obtain. As unbelief appears to them to be a novelty, they comprise all that is new in one indiscriminate animosity. They are at war with their age and country, and they look upon every opinion which is put forth there as the necessary enemy of the faith. Such is not the natural state of men with regard to religion at the present day, and some extraordinary or incidental cause must be at work in France to prevent the human mind from following its original propensities and to drive it beyond the limits at which it ought naturally to stop. I am intimately convinced that this extraordinary and incidental cause is the close connection of politics and religion. The unbelievers of Europe attack the Christians as their political opponents rather than as their religious adversaries. They hate the Christian religion as the opinion of a party much more than as an error of belief, and they reject the clergy less because they are the representatives of the divinity than because they are the allies of authority. In Europe, Christianity has been intimately united to the powers of the earth. Those powers are now in decay, and it is, as it were, buried under their ruins. The living body of religion has been bound down to the dead corpse of superannuated polity. Cut but the bonds which restrain it, and that which is alive will rise once more. I know not what could restore the Christian Church of Europe to the energy of its earlier days, that power belongs to God alone, but it may be the effect of human policy to leave the faith in the full exercise of the strength which it still retains. How the instruction, the habits, and the practical experience of the Americans promote the success of their democratic institutions. What is to be understood by the instruction of the American people? The human mind more superficially instructed in the United States than Europe. No one completely uninstructed reason of this. Rapidity with which opinions are diffused even in the uncultivated states of the West. Practical experience more serviceable to the Americans than book-learning. I have but little to add to what I have already said concerning the influence which the instruction and the habits of the Americans exercise upon the maintenance of their political institutions. America has hitherto produced very few writers of distinction, it possesses no great historians, and not a single eminent poet. The inhabitants of that country look upon what are properly styled literary pursuits with a kind of disapprobation, and there are towns of very second-rate importance in Europe in which more literary works are annually published than in the twenty-four states of the Union put together. The spirit of the Americans is averse to general ideas, and it does not seek theoretical discoveries. Neither politics nor manufacturers direct them to these occupations, and although new laws are perpetually enacted in the United States, no great writers have hitherto inquired into the general principles of their legislation. The Americans have lawyers and commentators, but no jurists, 
and they furnish examples rather than lessons to the world. The same observation applies to the mechanical arts. In America, the inventions of Europe are adopted with sagacity. They are perfected and adapted with admirable skill to the wants of the country. Manufacturers exist, but the science of manufacture is not cultivated, and they have good workmen but very few inventors. Fulton was obliged to proffer his services to foreign nations for a long time before he was able to devote them to his own country. The observer who is desirous of forming an opinion on the state of instruction amongst the Anglo-Americans must consider the same object from two different points of view. If he only singles out the learned, he will be astonished to find how rare they are. But if he counts the ignorant, the American people will appear to be the most enlightened community in the world. The whole population, as I observed in another place, is situated between these two extremes. In New England, every citizen receives the elementary notions of human knowledge. He is moreover taught the doctrines and the evidences of his religion, the history of his country, and the leading features of its constitution. In the states of Connecticut and Massachusetts, it is extremely rare to find a man imperfectly acquainted with all these things, and a person wholly ignorant of them is a sort of phenomenon. When I compare the Greek and Roman republics with these American states, the manuscript libraries of the former and their rude population, with the innumerable journals and the enlightened people of the latter, when I remember all the attempts which are made to judge the modern republics by the assistance of those of antiquity, and to infer what will happen in our time from what took place two thousand years ago, I am tempted to burn my books in order to apply none but novel ideas to so novel a condition of society. What I have said of New England must not, however, be applied indistinctly to the whole Union. As we advance towards the west or the south, the instruction of the people diminishes. In the states which are adjacent to the Gulf of Mexico, a certain number of individuals may be found, as in our own countries, who are devoid of the rudiments of instruction. But there is not a single district in the United States sunk in complete ignorance, and for a very simple reason. The peoples of Europe started from the darkness of a barbarous condition to advance towards the light of civilization. Their progress has been unequal. Some of them have improved the pace, whilst others have loitered in their course, and some have stopped and are still sleeping upon the way. Such has not been the case in the United States. The Anglo-Americans settled in a state of civilization upon that territory which their descendants occupy. They had not to begin to learn, and it was sufficient for them not to forget. Now the children of these same Americans are the persons who, year by year, transport their dwellings into the wilds, and with their dwellings their acquired information and their esteem for knowledge. Education has taught them the utility of instruction, and has enabled them to transmit that instruction to their posterity. In the United States, society has no infancy, but it is born in man's estate. The Americans never use the word peasant, because they have no idea of the peculiar class which that term denotes. The ignorance of more remote ages, the simplicity of rural life, and the rusticity of the villager have not been preserved amongst them and they are alike unacquainted with the virtues, the vices, the coarse habits, and the simple graces of an early stage of civilization. At the extreme borders of the Confederate States, upon the confines of society and of the wilderness, a population of bold adventurers have taken up their abode, who pierce the solitudes of the American woods and seek a country there, 
in order to escape that poverty which awaited them in their native provinces. As soon as the pioneer arrives upon the spot which is deserve him for a retreat, he fells a few trees and builds a log-house. Nothing can offer a more miserable aspect than these isolated dwellings. The traveller who approaches one of them towards nightfall sees the flicker of the hearth-flame through the chinks in the walls, and at night, if the wind rises, he hears the roof of boughs shake to and fro in the midst of their great forest trees. Who would not suppose that this poor hut is the asylum of rudeness and ignorance? Yet no sort of comparison can be drawn between the pioneer and the dwelling which shelters him. Everything about him is primitive and unformed, but he is himself the result of the labor and the experience of eighteen centuries. He wears the dress, and he speaks the language of cities. He is acquainted with the past, curious of the future, and ready for argument upon the present. He is, in short, a highly civilized being, who consents, for a time, to inhabit the backwoods, and who penetrates into the wilds of the new world with a Bible, an axe, and a file of newspapers. It is difficult to imagine the incredible rapidity with which public opinion circulates in the midst of these deserts. I do not think that so much intellectual intercourse takes place in the most enlightened and populous districts of France. It cannot be doubted that, in the United States, the instruction of the people powerfully contributes to the support of a democratic republic, and such must always be the case, I believe, where instruction which awakens the understanding is not separated from moral education which amends the heart. But I by no means exaggerate this benefit, and I am still further from thinking, as so many people do think in Europe, that men can be instantaneously made citizens by teaching them to read and write. True information is mainly derived from experience, and, if the Americans had not been gradually accustomed to govern themselves, their book-learning would not assist them much at the present day. I have lived a great deal with the people in the United States, and I cannot express how much I admire their experience and their good sense. An American should never be allowed to speak of Europe, for he will then probably display a vast deal of presumption and very foolish pride. He will take up with those crude and vague notions which are so useful to the ignorant all over the world. But if you question him respecting his own country, the cloud which dimmed his intelligence will immediately disperse. His language will become as clear and as precise as his thoughts. He will inform you what his rights are, and by what means he exercises them. He will be able to point out the customs which obtain in the political world. You will find that he is well acquainted with the rules of the administration, and that he is familiar with the mechanism of the laws. The citizen of the United States does not acquire his practical science and his positive notions from books. The instruction he has acquired may have prepared him for receiving those ideas, but it did not furnish them. The American learns to know the laws by participating in the act of legislation, and he takes a lesson in the forms of government from governing. The great work of society is ever going on beneath his eyes, and, as it were, under his hands. In the United States, politics are the end and aim of education. In Europe, its principal object is to fit men for private life. The interference of the citizens in public affairs is too rare an occurrence for it to be anticipated beforehand. Upon casting a glance over society in the two hemispheres, these differences are indicated even by its external aspect. In Europe, we frequently introduce the ideas and the habits of private life into public affairs, 
and as we pass at once from the domestic circle to the government of the state, we may frequently be heard to discuss the great interests of society in the same manner in which we converse with our friends. The Americans, on the other hand, transfuse the habits of public life into their manners in private, and in their country the jury is introduced into the games of schoolboys, and parliamentary forms are observed in the order of a feast. End of chapter 17, part 3